from 04 to about 2010, it was, it was a slow burn to say the least. You know, we, we were lucky enough to uh, be able to, I think, email the people who were who are our former fans at Sparknotes, our former users at Sparknotes, um, our, the, the users of Sparknotes in 2004 and let them know, hey, here's our new thing. And that gave us a small but solid core, like a solid enough core of users to kind of grow uh, slowly, you know, um, that maybe got us, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people, something like that. And then we grew, first of all, because we, the site worked, you know, and it was free and, and, you know, yeah, 30,000 people, maybe, I don't know, a couple hundred of them eventually get married or something like this from OkCupid. But those couple hundred, every person at their wedding knows that they got married because they met someone on this crazy site, OkCupid. And slowly that word of mouth effect happened. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Louder Than Words. My name is John Benini. I head growth at an email software company called Litmus and also Moonlight as a copywriter, which probably sounds a lot cooler uh, than it is. Um, more interesting is today we're hanging out with Christian Rudder, who is one of the founders of OKCupid, which I'm sure you've heard of, a household name in the online dating space, as well as best-selling author of Dataclism, which is about all the digital data that we have out there um, and basically what our online lives tell us about our offline selves, which is super interesting. Uh, Christian, thanks so much for joining us on Louder Than Words today, man. It's good to have you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have to ask you, so uh, the online dating space has sort of, you know, exploded as, as you know, mobile usage and, and all that kind of thing and, and apps and, you know, stuff like Bumble and Tinder. and all. So like online dating and that sort of thing has exploded in recent years. But OkCupid was, you know, really one of the originals, um, you know, founded in, in, in back in the, the late 90s. So can you talk about basically how, how that idea, uh, you know, how OkCupid came to be? Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, we were actually founded in 2003, just, you know, so not quite the late 90s. I think, you know, Match and eHarmony, I kind of consider them sort of the first generation. They were founded, I think Match was founded, like, I want to say 95, um, and eHarmony shortly thereafter. So we're kind of like the second generation, no doubt, uh, Tinder and, and Bumble, or who knows, the nth generation at this <laughs> point. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, me and the other guys who started OKCupid, we all worked together at a company called Sparknotes, uh, which they founded, and I was one of the early employees at. And um, we, the, the Sparknotes is like these free study guides um, that that actually still to this day are, are one of the most popular um, ways to uh, to uh, read a book without actually reading it for like <laughs> for high sure. school and college kids. Um, and Sparknotes was bought by Barnes and Noble, and we didn't really enjoy that experience, so we all quit. Um, and we're kind of kicking around for what to do next. And Chris, one of my co-founders, suggested online dating. He had in his head this idea that um, we could do it better than than Match and, and eHarmony. Uh, in, in particular, those guys were kind of splitting the world into two distinct halves. Match had this kind of anything goes type of environment, uh, at least algorithmically, where it's like you know, you guys, you and, and this other person are both twenty five. You both live in uh, St. Louis. 
that's enough. You're a match, you know, and that seemed a little bit naive. Um, eHarmony at the other end of the spectrum had this extremely long questionnaire, something like a couple hundred questions. You had to get all the way through it, extremely detailed, um, at the end of which they would decide whether you were suitable at all for the site. They would invite you to leave if they didn't like your answers to some questions, you know, most famously if you were um, looking for a same-sex relationship, but for other stuff too, like, you know, if they thought you would be too promiscuous or I don't know, something. So that just seemed very judgmental and prescriptive um, and foolish uh, from, from a business perspective. And so we, we figured we would take, we liked the idea that they were gathering data, but we wanted, instead of um, judging that data through whatever kind of lens, especially for eHarmony, this like Christian lens that they had, they, they were looking at everything through, we wanted to let each user decide what his or her algorithm would be. So we have the questions and the users decide what's important. Yeah, if you're really religious, um, you you can have the same ideals as, as eHarmony if you want to on OkCupid, or the same algorithm essentially. But if you're not, or you don't care about religion at all, you can you can have your algorithm reflect that um, too. And so that that's how we built OkCupid. And, um, you know, it it took us a while to, to, to grow to the point of... of of being the size of, of eHarmony or Match. Now, you know, now I think we're probably twice as big as both of them combined. Yeah, what was so interesting about, you know, coming from a place like SparkNotes, obviously, you know, completely different space. What was so interesting to you guys about the potential for for that space at, at that time? Was it just, was it that lack of experience and, the, and basically the simplicity that, you know, they were, you know, sort of uh, engaging their users? Well, I mean, we saw an opportunity. Yeah, we saw we saw an opportunity between Match and eHarmony uh, to to do something better um, and also make it free. Of course, you know those, especially at that time, those guys were charging thirty, forty, fifty dollars a month. You know, um, but also, you know, it was also uh, it it made sense. like the demographic is very similar to SparkNotes. You know, we have it's very it's related. It's a, it's one it's a few years evolved from SparkNotes. So you know, if you're in college and trying to study for you know, read the sound of the fury or something like that. Well, in a few years later, you'll be in a new city, not knowing anybody at your first job, uh, single, you know, trying to solve that problem. And, and so for, okay, Cupid, that was, or for, for us, that was like, well, here, this site is kind of fits that, that, that next need, you know, not that we ever thought of it in that exact way that it was like a demographically oriented strategy or something, but you know, it, those things are more of a piece than they might seem, I guess, spark notes and okay, Cupid. Last year, uh, something I found interesting too was the New York Times sort of published a a, a piece on you and, and how you spend your days, um, oh, yeah. which was interesting. But in the article itself, and I I'd imagine this is sort of par for the course for anybody who you know uh, starts a, an online dating site. You know, they kind of got into how you met your wife, and, and you mentioned in the in the article that you guys met in in an offline way. Um, also, that you had been in a band is, is sort of all that. Can you mm-hmm. walk us through like because you wonder like the people who found these sites? Oh, did they meet? You know, did they meet in in a, in a in a way that would you know sort of inspire them to uh, start a company? So how was how did, did did you meet your wife and how did that, if if at all, like play into you know your work at OkCupid? Um, well, I mean, let me say I, I hear a lot of ideas for dating sites uh, just in the course of life, and you know the ones that come from your personal experience or that come from the person who's telling me the ideas personal experience they're almost always terrible. Um, because, you know, people see, people think that, well, people observe that being single is hard and that dating sucks or whatever. 
and they ascribe it to whatever platform they're using. That suckiness. Say, well, it's dating sucks because this feature isn't on OkCupid or this feature isn't on Tinder. And I know I'm going to make a new Tinder that's going to have this feature and then dating won't suck anymore. That's just completely untrue and, and bad reasoning because the, the thing is the underlying thing of being single and trying to go out there and meet people and impress them or whatever uh, for a lot of people is really not fun. And it never will be. <laughs> so, so like you know, the, the the best you could do is make it slightly painless uh, and, and get out of the way, I, which is what OkCupid has always tried to do. Um, so, anyway, I, that's just a kind of, I guess, not an aside, but it's a preamble. Um, I, I think I met my wife just you know randomly. Uh, we we ended up at. I think the same party somehow or the same. She made, she came to see my band. It was just a different band than the one you alluded to uh, play a show. And then we, we, I think we all went to a party afterwards and we got to know each other and we were friends for a few years, um, kind of lost track of each other. Again, this is like way pre Facebook. This is like late nineties. So lost track of each other in the old way of just being like, I wonder what that person's up to. Um, and my roommate, um, Justin, uh, ran into her on the street here in Williamsburg, not actually not that far from where I'm sitting right now. And he got her number because we, all knew each other. And and so we all kind of became friends again. And then uh, my wife and I started dating after that. Um, So, yeah. So what kind of band were you in? I was in a, I guess, you know, like an indie rock band, a kind of folky indie rock band called Bishop Allen, um, which was really fun and actually good. It gave me a totally different type of experience uh, than, than, you know, working at Sparknotes for sure, but, you know, or even running OkCupid, but, but a very good uh you know, I, I don't think i would have done as good a job running okay cupid if i hadn't been in the band because we toured you know i think we went on like 10 u.s tours maybe four or five european tours you know we had some songs and movies and stuff and had like real crowds at the shows um and so i got to meet like tons of people and just ex- see almost all the united states you know and i just, just had a better sense of of the world if i had spent my 20s sitting in an office the whole time i think it would, would have made me uh worse at trying to run a, a, a website that, you know, is, is trying to help people. You know? Well, it's sort of that, that grassroots way of trying to grow a band and, you know, get a following and pre, sure. pre-Facebook days, right? You didn't have fa- likes on Facebook. You just had no, to play good no. music. What instrument yeah, did you play? Uh, I played guitar. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah, it was fun. It was great. Cool. Um, it, it, so also in that same article that had mentioned, you know, the way you had met your wife was, you know, um, New York Times published, and this is, you know, sort of from Dataclism, uh, that, you know, OkCupid generates about 30,000 first dates every single day in the United States. And then you went on in Dataclism to mention how, you know, so many of those turn into second dates. And I think there was a number in there that said 200 end up turning into, you know, people actually getting married. Um, yeah, so I'm just, th- those are estimates. I mean, I think they're very solid estimates and extremely defensible estimates, but I, I just want to be clear. That, was, sure. that is not an iron fact, but yeah, I think that's, that's certainly something in the neighborhood of those two numbers. Sure. Est- yeah, estimates or not, but like, what what do you, like, what goes through your head when you, when you think of numbers like that, that, you know, work that, you know, you guys had, you know, that started as this idea of trying to improve the space um, that, you know, today, you know, roughly 30,000 people are going to have their first date because of OkCupid and 200 of which may end up getting married, having kids. And, and, and that's like, what, what sort of goes through your head when you, when you think about that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, 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 it's funny running a dating site, you really lose track of that fact, unless you sit down with a piece of paper and work it out because, you know, the people using the site are kind of almost by definition, the people that it hasn't yet worked for, right. Because they're still single. So, um, 
most of what you hear from them is complaints. Um, and so, so, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I don't want to, it's, you know, what can I say? It's a lot of people and I'm, I'm proud of having been a part of that. And, uh, but I do want to emphasize that, you know, okay, keep it makes the introduction and, and the romance, even just the flirtation and, and the, certainly the love, uh, that all comes from the users themselves. Like, you know, we're a venue essentially. I think that's, that's a, common mis- misconception about dating sites is that we we create the love and that's just not true uh we introduce people essentially or, or help them introduce themselves to each other um but you know i mean i'm i'm very i love working at okcupid and i admire what we did but also i think the the users themselves have to take uh, the majority of the credit for having the uh, gumption to to put themselves out there and so you know when you guys decided to, you know, to go forward with this idea, you know, the space, you know, it wasn't brand new, obviously, because, you know, it had already been established um, by people like Match and, and eHarmony. But, you know, where do you begin in sort of letting people know, like, hey, we're here now? Like, where, how did you grow, you know, OkCupid into what it's become now? I mean, obviously, that was definitely over the course of, you know, years, you know, 16 yeah, yeah. years or so. But, uh, you know, what are some of the things you guys did early on to sort of, you know, elbow your way into that space and, and grow. Yeah, it, it was a long slog. I mean, you know, those first years we, we started, um, I think we went live in February of 04. We incorporated and started work in 02 and 03 sometime. So, you know, from 04 to about 2010, it was, it was a slow burn to say the least. You know, we, we were lucky enough to uh, be able to, I think, email the people who were who are our former fans at Sparknotes, our former users at Sparknotes, um, our, the, the users of Sparknotes in 2004, and let them know, hey, here's our new thing. And that gave us a small but solid core, like a solid enough core of users to kind of grow uh, slowly, you know. Um, that maybe got us, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people, something like that. And then we grew, first of all, because we the site worked, you know, and it was free. And, and you know, yeah, 30,000 people maybe, I don't know, couple hundred of them eventually get married or something like this from OkCupid. But those couple hundred, every person at their wedding knows that they got married because they met someone on this crazy side, OkCupid. And slowly that word of mouth effect happened. We also, uh, again, with my co-founder, Chris, we worked really hard and he should take, he deserves most of the credit for this. Like, you know, worked really hard at at random viral features. We had tests and I mean, this is the mid aughts. So there's just like all kinds of random crap that we put up that people would forward around. This is way before you know, Facebook walls and, and Twitter. So people, stuff people would forward around. We did a great job with our SEO, which was all kind of organically generated. Um, all those things slowly helped. Um, the blog that I worked on, that was kind of the turning point for the site because we had a lot of great data. And at that point we had enough of a base, enough, a large enough base of users that, that if we could really, that, that, that when a person came to us, no matter where they were living, St. Louis or wherever, uh, you know, some small town and, in, in Minnesota, there would be other users there. That's an extremely important thing to have, uh, you know, or criteria for success for a, for a dating site. You've got to have the dating pool has to be big enough. And we were big enough to absorb new users from anywhere. And then when we started the blog, um, which I wrote, uh, that really helped. We, we published a bunch of database posts that were kind of sensational, provocative. People had never seen anyone, a website, publish this kind of data about, you know, race. The, the racial the effect of race on attraction and, and all of this stuff that we could see from the way people were using OkCupid got us a good amount of news coverage, but mostly it just made it easy to talk about 
okay, Cupid, you know, hey, I, I saw this random post on this dating site, you know, that about whatever race and attraction or, or, um, the best kind of picture to take or something, you can mention it to your friend or it could come up in conversation. And it made it easy to talk about OkCupid, whereas like, you know, especially back in the early aughts, like or in the mid aughts, uh, there was a stigma around online dating and people were hesitant to mention that they were using a site like OkCupid. And the, the blog really changed that. And at that point, things kind of took off and it was a much easier stretch from from there to where we are now. For sure. So like, you know, as you mentioned, this is pre, you know, Facebook and, and, and Twitter being able to, you know, secure that viral element through, through places like that. So, you know, as far as like new user acquisition was, you know, it sounds like it was, you know, was it a lot of just, you know, creating that content and, and getting like, how did you even get that stuff to go viral? Um, you know, it sounds so antiquated, right? Like, oh, without Facebook and Twitter, like things didn't go viral, but they did. Like, what were some of the ways that you guys like, um, you know, just increase the reach of what you were doing and, and, and found new users. I mean, people just email stuff to each other, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's what I did at the spark too. Uh, it's spark notes, you know, with this started spark notes in 99 spark notes was the, my co-founder started spark notes in 99 and we were just making tests and ridiculous stuff that people would forward to each other, um, just to get the name out there. And so, you know, we basically did that. I mean, the blog was that, uh, for OkCupid. um, and it hit this, it was like a great moment in time. Data was kind of becoming a thing in 2009 um, when we first started publishing. Um, Twitter and Facebook were around enough to, to, to help us. Like I think one of our posts, you know, it got something like 80,000 Facebook likes in 2010. And that, that was a ton from, from in 2010 before that, that kind of the, the industry of getting people to like your random content really took off. You know, we were sort of like a Buzzfeed before there was such a thing, I guess, or an up or an upworthy. Um, and so we, I don't know, we just made stuff that people liked and they pretty much took care of the rest. Do you remember what that first big like milestone was as far as like number of users? I mean, maybe it was a hundred, right? When you guys first started, but like, was it a thousand? Was it a hundred thousand? Was it like, what, what, what was that point where you guys were like, holy shit, this is, this is working. Like, this is going to be big. You know, I mean, the site was hobbling along. It was growing always, but, but never quite at that critical mass to make enough money for us to, well, to, to be profitable, to, to have it be self-sustaining uh, really until late 2009 i mean the blog helped a lot but it was it was that love the blog was like the last piece of the puzzle that had been almost completed by a lot of these other random things so I, you know that that point that sort of the point at which we we're like who this site is really actually going to make it it's probably be late 2009 um when we were cash flow positive uh in terms of in terms of like you know your hundred thousand user or when you cross a hundred thousand uh daily logins that was a huge threshold for us too um but you know those are that was just that was it was great, but we it was still unclear if it was actually going to make it at that point. How many logins are you guys seeing now? Like nowadays, like how many users are like what does OKCupid do now? You know, I I, I left OKCupid about a year ago, and I'm still kind of closely aligned with with what's going on over there. But I don't know the internal numbers as well as I used to. You know, I'm sure it's somewhere between I'd say one and a half and two million a day. I would guess. Wow, that's a big um, yeah, that's a big number. Yeah, it's it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. But you know, dating is weird. It's it'll never it'll never no matter no no dating site Tinder or all of them combined even will never be as big as as something like uh, Facebook because people are only single for a very specific time in their life. Whereas you know, Facebook works when you're 13. It works when you're 65. It works every year in between. It's just a, a tool uh, or, or or kind of a 
uh, almost a plug-in for the internet at this point, you know. And sure. whereas online dating is, is is a tool that's very specific for a specific state that your life is in. Uh, you're single, uh, and as soon as you stop being single, you have absolutely no use for a dating site. <laughs> so it's so it's it's kind of well, our, our, the, the addressable market will always be limited for a dating site. Sure. And and out of the three founders, you were you were sort of the data driven guy, right? Very mathematically minded, and um, whereas they were they were more like actually developing and 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 you know engineering the product. Well, I mean, there are four founders, so there are three other guys besides me. Uh, we were all math majors. Um, I mean, to be honest, like I'm probably, I mean, I'm definitely not the best at math among all, all of us. I might be the worst. So uh, <laughs> I just, you know, honestly, the thing that the reason you know, any of us could have done the data analysis stuff, um, it fell to me because I, it was also a kind of editorial role. Uh, and that is, I think, a particular strength of mine among the four of us. So like, you know, somebody, in addition to the analysis, like the math behind the analysis is pretty basic. You're taking averages and making histograms and all this stuff that you learn in high school. It's the, the hard part about it is, uh, writing about it and making a, a narrative and making something that people want to read. And that, that I think is what I brought to the table in a more unique way than certainly my math ability. Did some of those findings, I mean, you, you just said it before, like some of it was, you know, a bit sensational, Did that sure. ever, did it ever piss anybody off? Oh yeah, people are always pissed on the internet. I mean, and they're always pissed at OkCupid. So you know, and we chose issues specifically that we knew were provocative. So yeah, of course, that should be a bumper sticker. People are always pissed on the internet. Yeah, uh, but they accept that everyone else knows it. What's the point? Of- <laughs> um, so and and you had mentioned like you know the the opportunity that you guys had seen you know sort of at the outset was how. You know, you can approach this differently, you know, algorithmically and, and, and data-wise. So um, I guess, how, how does OkCupid work? Like, how did it work differently at the time? Like, I'm sure the space is sort of, you know, largely similar now as far as, like, the type of, uh, um, uh, of course, I'm speaking in generalities, the type of data that, you know, they use to match people. But, um, like, what were you guys doing differently? Like, how did OkCupid work that was different? Different than, than match any harmony? Yeah, yeah, than other players in yeah. the space. Yeah, I mean... W- well, like I was saying at the beginning, like we match did virtually nothing in terms of deciding what made two people suitable for each other. You were near uh, in in you know physical space. I you lived in the same city, and you were near in age, and that was pretty much it. We thought eHarmony did way, 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 way too much, and also they decided that that these certain things were important. And those the certain things might not be important to some people. You know, religion might not matter to somebody. In fact, religion might be uh, repulsive to some people. You know, religion might be great for some people. But in eHarmony's world, religion and specifically Christianity was extremely important, and that kind of infused their their entire question questionnaire. Um, for us, we just wanted it to be flexible. We liked that that we have we had questions, so you could ask. You know, we we had all these questions: Do you smoke? Do you want to have kids? Whatever, everything under the sun. I, I, every question you can imagine a dating site asking, we asked. You know, uh, how important is religion to you? To, to say that, so we we asked all kinds of questions to the users, and then we let each user decide what answer was best for them. Like not only what their answer was, but what they wanted someone else to answer too. So if um, so, if you know, I I say I'm a vegetarian. I am a vegetarian, and imagine I don't care if my date is a vegetarian. Uh, I can specify that. If I do care, I can also specify that. So it just gave people flexibility to specify what they were looking for in addition to who they were. I guess that's how I would put it. Um, whereas eHarmony didn't let you specify what you were looking for. They they told you what you were looking for. Um, 
I don't, I don't know. I hope that makes sense. We just kind of basically we generalized a question and answer system. Match had no such system. eHarmony had a very specific non-generalized one. We generalized a question and answer system so that we could ask questions, collect people's answers, then also let people specify what they were looking for and how important a given value is to them. It does just, that make sense? Yeah, no, and it just seems so obvious too. Like you, you wonder how it, it was overlooked. Um, well, sure. I mean, but ordering a car with your phone it also seems <laughs> obvious in retrospect as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, what what is your opinion? When, I mean, when you look at how you know the the space, and I, I say that um, you know I say that with caution because I don't know if I if I would classify apps like. Tinder and and Bumble and all these things in the same space as you know a dating site, but when you see things no, they're, like they're that, they're definitely dating. I mean, they're not sites per se, but they're definitely dating apps. They're they're that is what they are. Well, I mean, what is your? <laughs> I mean, the, like just a simplified approach: swipe left, swipe right. Like, what are, what is your thoughts when you when you saw that sort of market spawn and evolve into you know apps like that? Well, you know, I mean, Tinder was started by the company that owns OkCupid. So, you know, I, we were, I saw an, an early demo and like, it must have been November 12 or something like that. Um, so, and I thought it was great. I mean, I thought the swipe gesture was great. Um, and the lightness of the app, it, it's solved a lot of people's problems with online dating, that it's just too much work, you know, and they, they definitely solved that problem. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, it's, Okay, keep it has been doing as well as it's ever done, you know, just in the last couple of years, it hasn't necessarily negatively affected ten, uh, okay, Cupid. It's definitely more than anything expanded the set of people who are, uh, who are online dating. It's, it's completely and finally, I think, removed the stigma to meeting someone online, something like Tinder has. That's a good point. It could be a gateway into some, you know, if this is going to work, then maybe I should just try something where, you know, I have data working for me. So that's a good point. Sure. And, you know, I mean, and I'm sure Tinder uses some data. I, I'm, well, I'm not so sure. I guess they might, but, but, it, it, you know, it's kind of to my point about the marriages before, like the ultimate algorithm, regardless of the data is in the, in the eye of the boulder, you know, um, people, people know what they want and, and that the, 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 the you know, even if they don't know it consciously, and and so that they're always running their own algorithm against whatever you're doing, and and that algorithm really has the final say. For sure, uh, I want to talk uh, quick too about dataclism, which was you know sure. the book that you put together. Was this essentially like you took some of the the more fascinating things or the learnings uh, you know that you were essentially blogging about, uh, and just kind of collated it into you know a book? No, no. I mean, I, I certainly there are some posts in there that are inspired by blog posts um, and OkCupid's data plays a role uh, for sure, a large role in the book, but it's all new stuff. It's um, it, I look at data from Facebook, I look at data from Google, I look at data from Twitter. I basically expand the methodology that we had at the blog, which is at the OkCupid blog, which is t- to take you know social data um, and look and kind of mine it for s- social science um, for t- topics of, of interest there rather than uh, you know for, for optimizing some Cash flow situation. So I basically, it's like a, it's like a, a, a behavioral science approach to social data, um, but I expand it to to sites beyond OkCupid, other dating sites. Tinder is mentioned. I think there's a couple graphs from Tinder in there. There's, like I said, Facebook, Twitter, all, all of kind of the big data sources of our time. What did that involve? As, as, as far as like, you know, trying to you know involving these other sites, Facebook, Twitter. Like, how did, how did you go about like securing that data? It was a lot of legwork. Um, I'll just put put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, simple enough, right? Um, yeah. 
And, and, you know, you mentioned how, you know, businesses like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, yeah, sure, they're apps, they're businesses, it's software, uh, but they're also demographers in a way, right? And, you right, know, exactly. That's, that's exactly the point of the book. And they have, you know, and, and you make the point that there's enough digital data out there that shows, you know, that shows, you know, people like you uh, in your position, but now all of us, have, you know, how we fight, how we love, how we age and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, are there like, what are some of the more fascinating findings, I guess, that, you know, went into the book for you? Um, uh, I would assume they all are, right? Uh, if they made the yeah, book, but like what stands right, out? Yeah. Like what are some of the more fascinating findings? I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed working with the non Cupid stuff. I liked looking at Twitter and finding the you know that that analyzing the language on Twitter and finding that it's um, you know it's surprisingly sophisticated given the kind of bad rap that internet language in general, but especially Twitter has. Uh, you know the word length is actually longer than most than than, than other forms, including email, but all, even you know magazines. Um, I think because people just have to pack everything in. Um, the uh, kind of this there's this measurement called lexical density that that linguists have have. Uh, devised to kind of uh, describe the, the meaning, the amount of meaning in a given word or in a given sentence, I guess, amount of meaning in a given sentence. And Twitter's lexical density is, you know, it's higher than journalistic writing. It's, it's very high, higher than, uh, certainly higher than, than other kinds of writing that you find online blogs and what have you. So it's just, you know, it's, it, I, I was surprised to find that through the, the, the lenses that, you know, linguistics has developed, uh, Twitter actually seems like a sophisticated verbal environment because it doesn't certainly doesn't have that reputation. I enjoyed working with that. I really like looking at Google trends. It's an amazing tool. Google books, you know, they've logged every word that's ever been written that they've been able to get their hands on. And you can search, you know, to see how this, the frequency of mentions of pizza or something has changed over the last 200 years, you know? So that's like a pretty amazing thing to be able to do. Um, you can see how, you know, given it, you know, that starts in 1800, it goes to now, 1800 is very close to the founding of the United States. You can look at how, you know, British spellings finally fell out of fashion in the United States over time. In 1800, people spelled color with a U, you know, and it slowly, of course, now it's spelled without a U. Uh, and you can see 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 that go away. But then you can also see that people in England are starting to spell the American way now more in the last 10, 20 years because, you know, America has this like cultural uh, dominance um, in the English-speaking world, and that you can see that reflected in this little chart. It's there's there's just a lot of fascinating stuff um, in that, that Google's collected. I think that, that probably those would be two examples. There's, I mean, there's all kind. You know, people put their entire lives on Facebook. There's just and and filter a lot of their psyche through Google, and you can just discover a lot of awesome stuff. And the book is full of like fascinating, awesome stuff like that. Definitely recommend uh, to to the listeners. Um, so, in your opinion, like where does you know, where does the space, the online dating space, like, where is it going from here? Like, how does it evolve? Or is it, you know, is, is, has it become just what it is going to become? Like what, you know, you, you, you mentioned how you left, okay, keep it a year ago, but, um, you know, surely I'm, you know, you have an opinion on where it's going, like where, like, where does the space evolve? You know, that, that's a great question. And I, I'm not a kind of a futurist by like personality, you know, I, I don't, I, 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 the, the, the real answer is I, I, I don't really know, and I, I, I suspect that it will be roughly what it is until there's some big hardware change. You know, like I mean, um, the advent of the iPhone or the smart the smartphone. I feel like Twitter. I mean, Tinder. Excuse me. I feel like Tinder is um, might be the perfect dating implementation for a smartphone, right? And 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 I, I don't know. You can you know, but you've mentioned Bumble a few times. You know, Bumble is just like Tinder, but with a little twist, and it's 
a millionth this time as popular as a millionth as popular or something. I don't know a thousandth as popular. I don't think anybody's going to beat Tinder in that space, you know. Um, and so that means not a lot is going to change um, until there's a new thing. Uh, I don't know what that thing is. Um, I, maybe virtual reality. I, I doubt it's some kind of wearable like watch. You know, watches are just a phone that's attached to your wrist. It seems like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, Google Glass is not really a thing anymore. And that, that, and dating would be a weird combination, but I, I just feel like it's got a, that it's going to be driven by, um, some kind of external change, be it some kind of cultural or, or technological shift, which a phone is kind of both of those things wrapped into one. Sure. That's interesting. Kind of it's dictated and predicated upon like what, you know, the hardware advances are going to be. Um, that's interesting. Right. Exactly. Like, I just don't know. I don't know what better. I mean, I'm not saying there's never going to be another dating site. Uh, at all, and and certainly Tinder or OkCupid, are, they're not perfect. There's going to continue to be improvements in both of those, um, but it's just hard to imagine there being room uh, for something else right now. I think. So, what are you up to these days since uh, since leaving OkCupid? Um, I'm spending a lot of time with my daughter, which I like. I'm working on a second book slowly, um, which I guess probably most. Most authors are always working slowly on their books. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, you know, my two of my co-founders started uh, a cryptography company called Keybase, um, and I spend some time in their office. It's really amazing. If any of your listeners have an interest in cryptography or, or kind of um, privacy issues, they should check it out. It's Keybase.io. Um, uh, but that is pretty much it. I'm kind of just, and in, 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 I guess in, in the cracks, I'm, I'm thinking about what next um in terms of like you know another company another what 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 to do with um the kind of entrepreneurial side of my brain where should uh where can people go to connect with you uh online from here Uh, they can email or they can twitter you send a tweet (laughs) sorry tongue-tied i'm christian rudder uh at christian rudder on twitter um they can tweet at me but i honestly rarely (laughs) <laughs> rarely check it and almost, and even even more rarely reply so that that might not work if somebody has something that's just like a you know that they're burning to tell me uh they can email me um i guess at eh, just tweet at me i don't want to give out my email address <laughs> so <laughs> i don't know i'm sorry i don't have a more discour- a less discouraging answer I, if if somebody says something interesting to me i'll reply eventually there you go so and uh and w- one last thing like I, after i was reading the intro of your book um, I, I thought it was hilarious that you kind of ended your intro with also fuck body spray. What was that about? Oh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess it was a, depend. I mean, well, it was a callback to part, part of, uh, there was a little riff in there where I was talking about body spray in the middle. Uh, and it sounds like it didn't quite catch. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's what it's about. It's just about how people, Typically, or in before, um, I mean, let me put it another way. I guess you can probably cut this because it's a podcast. It was, you know, it was a reference to the fact that one of the primary uses of data is to market things, you know. And the example I give in the book is to sell body spray to people whose friends are talking about body spray, you know. And I just find that, I just think it's just a very obnoxious and really boring way to use. Um, all this very interesting social data. And so that, that was kind of a reference to that. Uh, Christian, this was a lot of fun, man. Very fascinating. I love the book. Um, Thanks a lot for coming on here and spending some time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. And for everyone else, thank you for listening and be sure to join us next time for, for more guests on Light of the Works. So long, everyone.